Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 250. Woohoo! A quarter of the way to what, a thousand? Yeah of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, we just love milestones like this, and we are pushing 8 million downloads on this podcast, and you guys have made it such a great journey. And I, I got to tell you, I just love being able to do this. So thank you for making it possible. Thank you for helping out our partners who bring this to you for free. Thank you for sharing this with your friends for, I know talk to so many of you when I'm on the road or reading my inbox that you're sharing this via social, you're sharing this via email and just uh, playing them back for your team. And uh, we just want to keep making this better. And I got to tell you, uh, if you ever have a convicting moment, and I'll tell you about it before we get into today's uh, guest's bio, I had one about a year ago with Gary Chapman in Edmonton when it was minus 25 Celsius. I'm going to tell you that story. But he is the author, the very well-known author of The Five Love Languages. And I talked to him all about that, its application in your family and at work. Like, how does this work when it comes to your employees? I think you're going to love today's episode. And another thing that I love to see is I love to see churches win. And so does Tony Morgan. He is the founder and lead strategist of the Unstuck Group. And I sat down with Tony and asked him some questions just about what he's learning as he works with church leaders. And he also worked with me when I was lead pastor of Connexus. I'm now founding teaching pastor, uh, but I brought Tony in and I thought I had a backdoor problem at the church. And what I love about Tony is he's so good at analyzing situations. And he told me, Carrie, you don't have a backdoor problem. In fact, it's a miracle you're growing at all. You have a front door problem. And so I asked him like, Tony, you have actual ratios on this stuff. Like, how do you figure this out? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, so we take a look at engagement in a couple of different ways. Partly, we're looking at once that person connects to a church, how do they stay engaged? And that helps us measure whether or not there's a backdoor issue. But what churches tend to forget is that all of the guests coming in their front door, how they're connecting with them, how they're tracking and following up with them, and really how many guests it takes for the church to continue to see traction and to see an increase in attendance, which obviously increases our opportunity to share the gospel. And there are churches that believe they have a backdoor problem, when in reality, it's really a front door challenge that they're facing. Well, Tony has all kinds of insights. And if you want to learn more, he has a free church health assessment, absolutely free. You can find it at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry and take that today. Tony outlines seven cycles of where churches land themselves. It's a life cycle of an organization and you'll find yourself in that cycle and it will tell you an awful lot about yourself. So you can go to theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry to take that today. The Unstuck Group has helped hundreds of churches get unstuck and thousands of leaders find their bearing and uh, I'd love for you to check them out. Also, what are you doing in terms of media this year? Because I know social is kind of everything. And this is what, this is the thought that haunts me. So many churches act like the only thing that matters is what happens in their building on Sunday morning. Now that's really, really important, but everybody you want to reach is online. 
And if you want to reach more people this Easter than ever before, you've got about a month, how do you get people to stop and take notice of the invitation you want to extend to them? Well, I would say it's through video and design. And you would say, we don't have the staff for that. Well, I'll tell you what, Pro Media Fire can help. They've got a team, an entire creative team, that you can access for a very low monthly flat rate. You get a graphic designer, an animator, a video editor for less than the cost of one staff hire. In fact, far less. They can make your sermon series graphics, social ads, sermon bumpers, whatever media your church needs. And they've got a special because you listen to this podcast. So go to promediafire.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And this is the very last month for the media bundle launch special for 40% off. So that's going to go away. Go to promediafire.com forward slash carry to get it and get some traction before Easter at your church. Well, I am so excited to bring you my guest this week. His name is Gary Chapman. A lot of you know him. I imagine most of you have read or at least are familiar with The Five Love Languages. And that's a book that's really helped me in my marriage. It's a book that really has helped me parent better and also lead better. You can't lead all the staff the same. We get into all of that. It's fascinating because, and, and we hint at this in the interview, but it's it bears repeating. It's a pivotal moment in my life. So we are in an Edmonton, Alberta. I'm speaking at this conference. It's literally minus 25. It doesn't matter whether it's minus 25 Celsius or Fahrenheit. It's just cold. Okay, that's how cold it is. We're waiting for a van to take us to the hotel to do this event tomorrow. And I'm standing on this platform in this like parking garage thing by the airport and I'm like, I think that's Gary Chapman. I just see him out of the corner of my eye. So while we're standing there freezing, I go over and talk to him. And I just ask him, like, are you Dr. Gary Chapman? And so we shake hands and uh, I, I start asking him questions. And, you know, that led obviously to this interview. But part of me is thinking, like, what are you doing in Edmonton when it's minus 25 in January? Like, you know, he's, he's not exactly a 25-year-old leader trying to get a break. And he told me that his book has sold, are you ready for this? Over 12 million copies and that it sells better every year. And then I'm thinking, Kate, really, what are you doing here in Edmonton in January? Because I knew he wasn't even keynoting. He was doing a workshop. And what he said to me, so I just asked him, I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, you know what? Not everybody has heard the message. And I thought, now that is mission driven. And it was so convicting to me, like over a year after that, conversation, I'm like, I want to be that guy. When I'm however old he is, I want to be that guy. I want to be mission driven, not money driven, not fame driven, not whatever driven. So if that's all you get out of this episode, man, you've already won, but you're going to get a lot more out of that. So we have a lot of fun talking about the five love languages, marriage, relationships, the differences, and then how it applies at work as well. So let's jump into my conversation with the Dr. Gary Chapman. Well, I'm extremely excited and a little bit humbled, well, a lot humbled to have Dr. Gary Chapman on the podcast today. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Great to be with you, Gary. We met uh, earlier this year, early 2018 in Edmonton in January, which is quite the experience. Do you you remember (laughs) flying in that night? I Uh, do, you know. It was a blizzard. (laughs) It It was every stereotype you can imagine. And I, I met you and, you know, we were standing waiting to be picked up by a shuttle for this conference we were both speaking at. Yeah. And I looked over and I thought, that looks like, 
Dr. Gary Chapman. And like most people who have listened to this podcast, I, I knew of you by reputation, had read some of your books. So I struck up a conversation. And just to acquaint listeners, I, I remember I asked you, you know, how long ago was the five love languages? And you said it was 20, is it 25 years now? 1992, 93? Yeah, 25 years. Absolutely. 25 years. And you told me something about the sales, which I thought was really fascinating. Uh, what's happened to the book sales-wise? Yeah, it's been interesting. For 25 years, every year, it sells more than the year before. And it's now sold over 12 million copies in English and been translated in 50 languages around the world, which That's absolutely crazy. blows my mind. <laughs> I'll bet it does. And the fact that it keeps selling more every year is a little bit counterintuitive as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it meets every criteria for the word classic, which as a leader made me think, okay, if that's true, what are you doing in Edmonton in January? <laughs> because <laughs> you've, you've kind of passed the threshold of success, right? <laughs> like you got nothing left to prove. Uh, you've sold 12 million books. And even if you were getting a nickel a book, you're, you, you know, it's clearly not the money that that's moving you there. And, uh, you know, you were, you weren't main staging. I don't think at that event, you were doing breakouts. And so yeah. I asked you, I asked you, why did you come? Do you remember what you said? I think I probably said something to the effect that there are people here that haven't heard what I'm going to say, and it's worth hearing. <laughs> That's exactly what you said. And it was, it was so humbling for me because I thought that's the mission. Like yeah. that's somebody who's, who's mission-driven. You've been doing this all of your life, and when a lot of people, maybe at your stage of life, would be sitting you know, in a, in a, on a lawn chair somewhere, a lounge chair somewhere warm, uh, with a drink with an umbrella in their hand, you you are in Edmonton in January getting the message out. So that was very convicting, very inspiring. I will never forget that. So that was a wonderful first time to meet. And then we shared a couple of meals together and uh, I'm really, really honored to have you on. So your work literally has impacted tens of millions of people. Uh, the five love languages, 12 million copies, 50 languages that it's now been translated into I want to go back and ask you why, first of all, how did you end up stumbling on these love languages? And then why did you write the book in the first place? Yeah. Well, it really grew out of my counseling. Uh, I'd been counseling a number of years uh, before I wrote that book. And over and over, I was hearing in my office similar stories where a wife would say, or a husband would say, I just feel like he doesn't love me or she doesn't love me. And the other would say, I don't understand that. I do this and this and this. Why would you not feel loved? And so I knew that people were sincere, but they were missing each other. And I knew there had to be a pattern to what I was hearing because it, I just heard it again and again. So eventually I sat down and read several years of notes that I had made when I was counseling and asked myself the question, when someone said in my office, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? <laughs> and their answers fell into five categories. So I later called them the five love languages. <laughs> and I started using it in my counseling, you know, and helping them discover each other's love language and challenging them to go home and speak it. And sometimes they would come back, Gary, in three weeks and say, Gary, this is changing everything. The whole climate's different now between the two of us. And then I started using it in small groups. 
And the same thing would happen. So it was probably five years later that I thought, you know, if I could put this concept in a book and write it in the language of the common person, put the cookies on the bottom shelf, maybe I could help a lot of couples I would never have time to see in my office. That's what motivated me to write the book. Of course, little did I know that it would sell as it has sold and that God would use it to help so many couples. Almost every Saturday when I do marriage seminars, I do about 20 marriage seminars on Saturday a year, I'll have couples come up to me and say, you know, we were that close to divorce. Someone gave us your book on the love languages. It was like the lights came on and we tried it. We learned each other's language. We started speaking it. It literally saved our marriage. So, you know, that's what motivates me. I know it's a simple message, but I know if couples will apply it, it's going to change the emotional climate in their marriage and it's going to affect everything else in their marriage. So yeah, I'm highly motivated. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's incredible. How do you stay motivated like over that long? A lot of people will take on an idea, they'll get excited about it, and then, you know, a decade later they're on to something new. But now that's 30 years. If you look at the runway yeah. for this, yeah. for yeah. 30 years you've been doing this and uh you know, you're you're at retirement age for a lot of people, I would assume, and you're doing every other weekend on average marriage yeah. seminars. Yeah. What, what's the key to longevity? Yeah. People ask me uh, what I'd like to do if I retired. And I said, <laughs> I'd like to do what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I'm motivated because I, I know that it's not just the love languages. I speak on other aspects of marriage. Oh, of course. Well. Yeah. But but I know that marriage and family, so many broken marriages, which affects so many broken families. And, and I know that many people have not heard the kind of things that I'm sharing that are easy to apply and that really do change the climate of the marriage. And so, you know, in a given audience, I will sometimes say, if I'm speaking on the love language, I'll say, now, for some of you, if you've read the book, this will be a review. For others of you, it'll be an introduction. And I know that a lot of the people out there have not heard it before. And when they hear it, they say, oh, well, that's simple. Why didn't I, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I said, well, it's a simple concept, not necessarily so simple to do, because you may have to learn to express love in a different language to your spouse. But if you do, it'll pay off. Hmm. How, how do you, uh, because a lot of us, you know, we're, we're on a mission. A lot of church leaders listening to this, some business leaders listening to this. And I think if any of us reached the 12 million mark, we'd be tempted to, you know, say, well, this must be the finish line, but it's not. How do you keep the message fresh? How do you make sure that you're not just giving the stump speech that you've given for 20 years? Well, I think because I know that there are people there that have not heard this and there's some who have the general idea, but they're not practicing it. And I know it's going to help them. That's what motivates me. I know it's going to help people. And so even though I've shared it many, many, many times, I know that some of them are not applying it. Even if they've heard the term, they're not applying it. And I'm trying to make it practical and challenging them to go home, take the quiz, figure out your love language, try speaking each other's language and see what happens. And when they do, good things happen. <laughs> the day after you and I met for the first time, I was at uh, breakfast with uh, some publishers talking about this. And I said, 12 million copies, like, and he's here in January. That's incredible. And then we tried to, <laughs> we've all read your book. We tried to recount 
the five love languages in between three or four of us, we, we got four out of five. So we, we didn't even pass. And it's been pivotal in my marriage and my parenting because you've done a teen version and so on. So just so we're all on the same page and for those who may be new, uh, what, what are the five love languages? One of them is words of affirmation. You look nice in that outfit. Really appreciate what you did. Just verbally affirming the other person. You know, there's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says life and death is in the power of the tongue. You can kill people or give them life by the way you talk to them. For some people, words of affirmation is their love language. The second love language is gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. The gift says they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. Doesn't have to be an expensive gift. It's the thought that counts, okay? Number three is acts of service, doing something for the other person that you know they would like for you to do. In a marriage, that's such things as cooking meals, washing dishes, vacuuming floors, washing the car, mowing the grass, doing the laundry, anything you know your spouse would like for you to do. Remember the old saying, actions speak louder than words. Yeah. It's true for these people. It's not true for everyone. But it's <laughs> right. People, okay. Number four is quality time, giving the person your undivided attention. Uh, This is the person that enjoys having an hour and a half lunch with a friend and just talking. In a marriage, uh, it's a a husband and wife who sit down on the couch, look at each other and talk to each other and share life with each other or take walks down the road and talk or go out to eat and talk. But it's giving the other person your full attention. It's not just conversations because each of the languages have dialects. And conversation is one of these dialects, but it may be uh, doing a project in the yard together. But the important thing is not the project. The important thing is this is something we're doing together. And the number five is physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. That's why we pick up babies and hold them and kiss them and cuddle them. Long before the baby understands the meaning of the word love, the baby feels love by physical touch. In a marriage, this is such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of marriage, arm on the shoulder, put your hand on their leg as you're driving down the road. And I sometimes say when they walk by, you trip them. (laughs) (laughs) Getting on that one, okay. Uh, So the basic concept is out of the five, each of us has a primary love language. One of the five speaks more deeply to us emotionally than the other four. We can receive love in all five, but one of them is more important. And if we don't get our primary love language, we will not feel loved, even though we're getting some of the other languages. So the key, you have to learn to speak the language of the other person. And when you do, I call it the love tank. The love tank fills up and you feel (laughs) loved by that other person. Then it's easier to process all the rest of life easier to process the conflicts and and the hard times in life because you feel secure in each other's love. That's the basic concept. Is it typical for a couple to marry someone with the same love language or different? Very seldom does a husband and wife have the same love language. It does happen, but not very often. And even if they have the same language, they will likely have a different dialect. For example, one wife said to me, My husband and I have the same love language. I said, what is it? She said, acts of service. But, she said, 
the things I want him to do for me that make me feel loved are different from the things he wants me to do for him. Same language, just different dialects. That's so funny. Yeah. So in other words, uh, the dishwasher, emptying the dishwasher may be it for her, uh, but his would be something entirely different. Vacuum yep. the car, or wh- whatever, you know, yep. clean the or house. Dirty shirt. Dirty yeah, shirt. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, one of the reasons I ask that is that was a tension point early on in our marriage because I would bring my, so my wife is quality time mm-hmm. and I'm a visionary entrepreneurial guy, always, you know, busy and she wants my undivided, undistracted attention, which yeah. I have trouble giving to anybody and <laughs> let, let alone the person I love the most. So it's been a discipline over the years, but you know, that caused a lot of confusion until we were introduced to, to love language. And one of mine, it's acts of service and gifts for me. So I'd bring her home flowers. I thought that's what good husbands do, right? Every week I'd bring her home a fresh bouquet of flowers. She would leave them in the sink or tell me that it was annoying and she didn't have time for it. And I would have to cut them myself. And part of me, I'm thinking, do you know how many women would love their husbands to bring them flowers? But apparently not this one. Uh, but that's a love language thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I heard uh, just a lady today called into a radio program I was doing. And she said, uh, I'm, I'm engaged and I love to have long conversations with my boyfriend. We live in different towns, but he doesn't want to have long conversations on the phone. Mm. Well, Obviously, to me, her love language is quality time. She likes this long conversation. He's not quality time. So he, he does not real fond of this. And she was feeling hurt by that. But if she understands that he has a different love language, and if he understands that's her love language, he has to learn to give her those long conversations. She has to learn to speak whatever his language is. And if they do, they can continue to grow in the relationship. It's true. And, and my wife has really come to appreciate, and I think always did, you know, fresh flowers. But when you're yeah. trying to raise two kids and get dinner on, it, it just doesn't communicate. And then she would try to communicate with me and say, well, let's just leave the dishes and let's connect. And I'm like, I, I can't leave the dishes. Like, <laughs> I can't connect. You know, in Mary and Martha, I really think Jesus got that wrong. He was perfect, except for that. It's like Martha was right. Mary was wrong. But, uh, but I'll go down as a minority view on that one in, in history. Uh, and we've, we've really, you know, um, we've really learned that. And it's been so life-giving. She knows that I'm acts of service and gift. She's quality time. And uh, I'm going to let her speak to her second gift. <laughs> I don't want to presume. Uh, but we've, we've figured out a way. And you're right. It really fills up the love tank. And I have to make sure that I have, I've got my list, you know, I might get up an hour earlier and get my list crossed off because then I feel like I'm in a place where I can truly give undivided attention. Um, so, so it's learned behavior, isn't it? It is. It is. You, the good news is you can learn any one of these languages, even if you did not receive them as a child, you can learn them as an adult. It may be a learning curve, but you can learn them. And in fact, if you want to have a good marriage, you do learn. You choose to learn to speak their love language. You said something interesting I'd love you to drill down on, even if you didn't learn them as a child. How much does our childhood home environment impact the expectations we carry into our relationship as adults? Well, I think they do impact us. I think we, as men, we watch our fathers. We see what our fathers do. And that's our idea of what a husband does. 
Mm. We want our mothers, and that's our idea of what a wife does. And we bring those models into our marriage. But our spouse had a different mom and dad, and they had a different model. So this is a common source of conflict in that, well, in my my house, she says, well, well, my, my father would clean the toilets. And he said, well, in my house, my mother cleaned the toilet. <laughs> that's why one of the things I suggest, I have another book that's called Things I Wish I'd Known Before We Got Married, yeah. 12 Things That I Had Known. And one of them is, uh, I wish I'd known that toilets are not self-cleaning <laughs> <laughs> because I thought she would do it. She thought I would do it. So I suggest to couples, before you get married, make a list of all the things that will have to be done after you get married. Somebody's got to buy food. Somebody's got to cook food, wash dishes, everything you can think of. Make a list. Then, individually, she puts her initials by the ones she thinks she will do and his initials by the ones she thinks he will do. He does the same. Then you come together and see how many of them you agree on. And maybe half of them, maybe even two-thirds, you agreed on. But the other third, he thought you would do it. You thought he would do it. Now's the time to decide, okay, Let's talk about this. Who, who, who's better equipped to this? And let's decide before we go into marriage, who's going to do what. Therefore, we'll have fewer conflicts once we get into the marriage. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do that for 50 years. Maybe you can change. You know, before we got married, my wife agreed that she would keep the books, pay the mm-hmm. monthly bills, you know, and all that. And she did it about three months. And she said to me, honey, could you do this? I said, well, I could, but why? She said, she said, it hurts my stomach because <laughs> we didn't have much food. I was in, gra- I mean, money, I was in grad school. <laughs> yeah. And so it was kind of tight and it was hurting her not, stomach. Not adding up the way it should, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's good. And a lot of, so much of it is communication. Well, let's talk to parents for a minute. And uh, how does love languages impact? I mean, you've got books on this too, teens and children, et cetera, but all of a sudden you introduce some new people into the mix and their love languages are different than yours. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I say to parents, it's not, the question is not, do you love your children? Hmm. The question is, do your children feel loved? Right. Parents can be sincere. Most parents love their children, but not all children feel loved. You know, here's a 13 year old sitting in my office. He's run away from home. He says to me, my parents don't love me. They love my brother. They don't love me. Do the parents love him? Yes. Problem? They haven't been speaking his love language. So uh, learning the love language of a child and a t- or a teenager is extremely important in meeting the emotional need. The deepest emotional need a child has is the need to feel loved by the significant people in their lives. And for them, that's their parents. And if they feel loved, they grow up emotionally healthy. If they don't feel loved, they grow up with many internal emotional struggles. And in the teenage years, they will likely go looking for love, typically in all the wrong places. So uh, both of those books, the one, uh, uh, Five Love Languages of Children, Five Love Languages of Teenagers, written to parents on how to effectively love their child or their teenager so that the child feels loved. We did more recently write one to the teenager. It's called A Teen's Guide to the Five Love Languages. So it's helping the teenager get the picture on this, that mom and dad also have a love language. (laughs) Right. 
if the teenager can get that, oh, it's going to enhance the relationship between them and their parents. It would seem to me, Gary, that, I mean, maybe it's just a sampling of people that tend to show up at a church, but in, in my experience at our church and other churches, I would hazard a guess, it's not mathematical, it's more anecdotal, that the majority of you know, teens and young adults would say, I feel misunderstood and perhaps not loved well enough by my parents. It seems to be a pretty common story. Is that a common story? And if so, why and what can parents do about it? Because I think you're right. I mean, there's a couple of, you know, crazy parents who don't love their children or love anybody, but I would say 90 whatever percent of parents are, they really do love their kids and they're doing their best. So what, what, where is that disconnect? How does it show up? Well, I think especially with the teenager, uh, parents often do not understand what is going on in the mind of the teenager. You know, the brain is being rewired as a teenager, and they're beginning to develop logical thought. That's why they say to you, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, they listened to you as a kid. Now they're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. It's because they're developing logical thought. And I say developing because it's not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so sometimes they'll say it doesn't make sense when from your perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I think if we understand the changes that are taking place in the body and in the brain and emotionally, man, it's so important that during those years of development and change that they feel loved by the parents. And, and I think it's not that parents are not sincere. It's that parents really don't understand that each child has a particular love language. And if I want them to feel loved, I've got to learn what it is and I've got to learn to speak it. Let, let's say, for example, that the teen's love language is words of affirmation. Yeah. Let's say that the parent gets aggravated with them because of teenage behavior of one sort or another. And so the parent is, you know, raising their voice at them or telling them, you know, that how awful that is. Or Negative words to a teenager whose love language is, Words of affirmation, it's like a dagger to their heart. It's saying, I don't love you. Now, that's not what the parents intend to be saying, but that's what the teenager's feeling when you use harsh and negative words with them, and that's their primary love language is the opposite of that. You know, so understanding that can help a parent be effective in loving a teenager while they go through all those changes. What are some other examples of how love languages get nuanced in teenagers, just for the parents who are listening and starting to feel a little uneasy? <laughs> well, the teen's emotions are going like this. Yeah. What I say to, to parents, it's not just knowing their love language, it's also knowing when to speak it. For example, let's say that a teen's love language is physical touch. And when they were little, you could go up after the game they played, hug them, <laughs> say, oh, you did a great job. Now they're teenagers. Don't go hugging them on the field. They're going to push you away. Yeah. And even in the home, uh, maybe in the morning, they came up close to you and you actually hugged them and they received it. In the afternoon, you try to hug them and they push you away. Yep. There's some things going on inside of them and their emotions that, you know. So I say to parents, if physical touch is the teen's love language, if they come up close to you, it's okay to hug them. That's a good time. If they're standing on the other side of the room, don't go over there and hug them because they're, they, they're putting that distance there for a purpose. So learning how to read the teenager and know when to say and do what is also a part of the equation. You, uh, you say some really helpful things on discipline and children. 
and teenagers. Do you want to you want to just go through through a few really good guidelines for parents on what is helpful discipline, what's yeah. not helpful discipline, just guidelines. Yeah, I think first of all, we should have as few rules as possible. Mm-hmm. Not a thousand rules. Every one of them should be purposeful. We should have thought our way through what's this rule for. And with the rule, we should also tell the child and the teenager the consequences if they break the rule. For example, let's say the rule is we don't throw the ball inside the house. If you do throw the ball inside the house, the ball has to go in the trunk of the car for two days. And if you break something, you have to pay for it out of your allowance. Okay? The kid gets that. The teenager gets that. So now everybody knows what will happen if they break the rule. You see, otherwise, it'll depend on our emotion of the day. If I'm already stressed out and they throw the ball, I'm going to yell and scream at them. And if I'm not, if I'm really in a good mood, I might just say, remember, don't throw the ball in the house and just overlook it. So the kid doesn't know whether the rule counts or doesn't count. So we have to be consistent in applying the consequences. The other key thing is, If you know the child's love language and you can wrap the discipline in their love language, they're going to receive it much more readily. If words of affirmation is their language, and so you're going to discipline them about the ball in the house, you say, Johnny, I'm so proud of you, man. You seldom break the rules, but this time, you know you broke the rule. So you know what has to happen, right? Yep. Okay, let's walk out to the car and put the ball in the trunk. And I don't know what that vase costs, but we'll have to find out and you'll have to pay for it out of your allowance. But look, man, I'm so proud of you because you seldom break the rules. You wrapped it in his love language. He walks away feeling this is right. This is fair. I broke the rule. Everything's fine. But if you don't wrap it in his love language and if his love tank is empty, then he walks away thinking I mess up one time and they get on my case. We're far more likely to receive the discipline if you feel loved. I'm having a lot of flashbacks right now. <laughs> but, you know, I remember I remember reading your, your book for teenagers. Love Is it, what's it called? Love Language for Teenagers? Love Languages of Teens for Teenagers. Of Teens, yeah. Yep. And I remember reading the piece on discipline about prescribing, like pre-deciding the consequences. Yep. And it was a drop the book and jaw, drop my jaw open moment. I'm like, of course. And... I don't know whether you used the example or whether I thought of the example, but like, you know, in society as a whole, all the consequences to the rules are spelled out in advance. If you're going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, police officer can't come up to you and go, well, you're going to jail for a year, right? You know, it's like, because I'm having a bad day and my boss is on my case and, you know, we're, we're going to, it's a death penalty for you. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the fine is set. You're getting somewhere between a, a $50 fine and a $100 fine or whatever it is. And it might yeah. be a demerit point or it isn't, but you, they can't make it up on the spot. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's what just about every parent does. You just make it up in the yeah. moment when your emotions are going. Yeah. And was it you? I'm pretty sure it was you who suggested that ahead of time, when there isn't an issue, you give your children as they mature some discretion as to what the penalty might be. What do you think a, yeah, you, you wrote that. So talk about that because that was like, that was huge. Yeah. Especially if they're, you know, 10 or 11, 12 or teenagers and you're making a a new rule and you say, uh, what do you think would be a fair, uh, you know, consequence of doing wrong? 
sometimes they'll they'll raise it higher than you would have. <laughs> Our kids did every time. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, I'm going to try this out. I'm like, you need to, you know, and they were early teens or whatever. And our, you know, they were getting the car and I'm like, so if you're late, what do you think a good consequence should be? Well, I think I should lose the car for a month. Well, oh, I was thinking an hour, but we'll go with a month, right? Like, that's awesome. And then because they set the rule, yeah. they have ownership, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That, that's so good. Anything else on teens? I want to talk about workplace and, and a bunch of other stuff too, but. No, no I, think, I think those are the key factors. You know, if a teen feels loved and a teen knows what the rules are and you administer the consequences on a regular basis and everybody knows, you, you're moving down a good road because yeah. a teen needs boundaries. That's what rules are all about. A teen needs boundaries because they're going to need boundaries as long as they live. And the teenage years, actually childhood and teen, that's the years to learn. I got to live within boundaries. And if I don't live within the boundaries, it's going to be negative consequences. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's what happens when you're 30 or 40. So might as well start when you're 10. Um, <laughs> so, so you said as few rules as possible. Uh, yeah. What would you say to the parent who's like, do you know how complicated it is out there for teenagers? And I, I feel like we need 82 rules. And <laughs> how would you even pick like, a handful or two or three? Like, where do we even start with that? Well, I'm not arbitrary in how many we ought to have. Sure. But I would say this, every rule you have should be meaningful. Mm -hmm. That is, you're going to set a curfew for teenagers who are old enough to go out on their own. Okay, a curfew. Well, why do you do that? Because you know there's going to be people out there that won't want them to stay up later and later and later and get into more and more and more trouble. So you have a curfew. That's the purpose of it. We're either trying to protect our children, a safety, a rule for safety, or we're trying to teach them some skill that they need to learn, like putting your toys up when you get through playing with them, put them back where they belong, bring your bicycle into the garage after you've been out bicycling. It's teaching them something that's going to be helpful to them for the rest of their life. We take care of our possessions. So there's, you know, all kind of reasons why, but we ought to have a reason and we ought to communicate the reason why uh, we, we have this rule in our house. And they're going to say, well, Johnny next door, he doesn't have to do that. I understand, honey, but I'm your mother. I'm your father. And we have to make the rules here. Johnny's mother and father can do what they want to do. We make the rules because we love you and we want you to learn everything you can learn so that you're going to be a success in life. That's our objective. That's good. Now, you've also brought this into the workplace because you hire actual people who respond to love languages. What are the applications for employers, leaders, managers? Well, you know, through the years, so many people would come up to me from time to time and say, I know you wrote your original book for married couples and applying that to marriage, and then you applied it to children and teenagers, but I'm using it at work in my work relationships. And I would say, tell me about it. And they'd give me their story. And uh, several of them would say, could we write a book on this? But they were people like hairdressers and construction workers. <laughs> but finally, I met Dr. Paul White, who is a psychologist, 20 years experience in working with businesses. And he approached me about writing a book on this topic. And I said, well, Dr. White, I'm open to this, but we need to do a little research to make sure it works in the workplace. Right. So he, for two years, two and a half years, 
he would go into all kind of businesses and he would give the people a job satisfaction test. And then he would share the concept of the five, we call them the five languages of appreciation in the workplace, but it's the same love language. It's taking the love languages to work. And then he explained it to them and everybody, everybody take the quiz and everybody learned everybody's appreciation language. Then he would go back a year later and give them another job satisfaction test. And in every instance, it was statistically improved. So what it says to the manager is, if people feel appreciated in the workplace, they're more highly motivated to give themselves to the task. It's going to be good for the bottom line. But most managers will tell you, oh, I appreciate my people. I tell them. I tell them. Words of affirmation. (laughs) And they hit maybe 40% of their people. But the other 60%, those words don't mean anything to them. So what we're saying is if you want to be effective in expressing appreciation in the workplace, you have to individualize it. You have to know what their appreciation language is. And incidentally, it's not always the same as their love language at home because a work relationship is oh. a relationship. You know, there's yeah. about a 36% correlation. 36%. How much? I missed that. 36%. 36. Uh, will have the same love language, will have the same appreciation language as their love language at home. But the others have a different one at work. So uh, we have a, a quiz that goes with the book. You get a, a free uh, assessment. We call it the MBA assessment, Motivating by Appreciation Assessment. <laughs> and when you get it, uh, it gives you your primary appreciation language at work, your secondary, and the one that's least important to you. It's important to know that also. That means right. that not going to do anything for them. So, and, and we we did we started to write it only for managers and supervisors. But later we thought, you know, this can start anywhere. One little work group of five people that work together every every day, they can start it right there in their group. And when they do, they're going to enhance the climate in which they work. And somebody else is going to want to know, hey, how about that? <laughs> it can start anywhere, not at the top. It can start anywhere in the organization. But here's what we discovered. And we didn't do this research. It was done by others that 70 percent of the people who have a job say they feel little to no appreciation from the people with whom and for whom they work. Sixty four percent of the people who leave a job and go to another job say they left primarily because they didn't feel appreciated where they were. So this is a huge factor in retaining employees and getting the most out of the employee. So it has tremendous implications for the business world. And, you know, it it takes us right back to where we started with married couples who are like, I don't feel loved, so I think I'm out of here. Same thing with employees. And, you know, one of the axioms in business these days is people don't quit companies, they quit managers. And a lot of that is probably anchored in appreciation. So how would that, like, okay, let's talk about physical touch. There is a charged issue in the workplace today what if someone you know they're is it the same in the workplace like physical touch is so how how do you handle that in today's climate it was very interesting in all of our pre-studies the hr people when we came to physical touch would say oh we don't do physical touch (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. you get fired for physical touch here right we heard it so consistently that dr white said to me Maybe we should leave that out. <laughs> Four I love said, languages, right? Yeah, Four languages said, of appreciation. I said, Dr. White, 
there are no human cultures where people do not touch other humans. Humans touch. Now, yes, there are inappropriate touches to be sure, but there are also appropriate touches in the workplace. But what we did discover, almost no one had physical touch as their primary appreciation language at work. At work. (laughs) Save that one for home. Yeah, at work. So when we did the inventory, uh, we did leave it out. But in the book, we have a chapter on physical touch. When is it appropriate? When is it inappropriate? Because that is a major problem in the workplace. Yeah, it is. The the physical abuse and and sexual abuse. But we discuss it thoroughly in the book. And what we say essentially is, if you see a fellow employee who's always giving people high fives or patting them on the back, you can assume it's, it's good to touch them. But if you don't ever see them touch anyone else, probably best not to touch them. Mm-hmm. Or if you happen to hit them on the shoulder and they stiffen up, don't, don't ever do that again. Let it go. Yeah. <laughs> Let it yeah. go. <laughs> and I mean, it's a highly charged issue, but I'll often find, you know, a hand on the shoulder and a direct look or a touch to the elbow, um, you know, can be appropriate. And then in other circumstances, it can be completely inappropriate, but you're trying to, to communicate empathy. You're trying to connect with people. What are some of the other like, okay, let me, let me, let me take it here because I think most, most people listening, most leaders listening would be familiar with the studies that show that at a certain level, money is demotivating. Like you reach a certain level, whether the figure is 75,000 a year, whatever it happens to be in 2018, 2019 dollars, uh, 75,000 a year beyond that. Would everyone love to make 150? Of course, but it, it really is declining appreciation. And I've learned even as a leader and a manager that not everybody wants a raise. Like the primary love language, and I think bosses often think, I'll just pay you more money. Um, but that is not the primary motivator for a lot of people. Can you drill down on that for us a little bit and what you've learned in your research? Yeah. If gifts is the person's primary love language, and they are making a salary that they can live on comfortably. Yeah. Uh, they would rather have a gift in a field and something that they really would like to have than they would to have more money. Really? Yeah, we, money's the easier thing. It's easier just to give them give money. So what would an example be? You, you send them on a vacation? You get them a gym membership? Like what? what? Yeah, he, and here's the good thing. When they take the inventory, they, it, not, if gift is their primary language, then they get to go back and list the kind of gifts that would be meaningful to them. So now you've got a list that came from them. You know, give, give me and my spouse a weekend away at a bed and breakfast or give me an afternoon off at, with pay. Or, right. And they'll tell you exactly what would be meaningful to them. So you've got the information now. Uh, you don't have to guess about it because it's, it's, it's right there. And that's true on all the languages. They, they go back and tell you some of the things that would be meaningful to them. And what, what about quality time? How does that show up in the workplace? Yeah, it might be such things as just checking with me, coming by once a week and just depending on the relationship right. and, and just saying, how's it going? How's your work going? How's your son doing? The one that plays football, how's he doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, just, it can be things about the job or just life in general, but it's giving them a little undivided attention. And uh, or maybe it's 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 going together, uh, three or four of you in a in a in a car going to a conference or going to an event. Uh, equality time, the, the conversations in that small group are very very meaningful to those people. Uh, it's just it's just acknowledging that they're a person, 
And it doesn't have to be long extended conversations. It can be short conversations, but it's geared to them and who they are and not always about the work. What's the one we haven't covered yet? We've talked about physical touch, words of affirmation, which would be probably written and verbal, talked about quality time, talked about gifts. What's the missing one? I'm blanking right now. Uh, let's see. Uh, acts of service. Did we say that? Yeah, no, acts of service. Ding, ding, ding. Yep, we win. Uh, what, what would you do with that? In the workplace, that would be such things as uh, uh, I'm going to the break room or I'm going to the storage, storage room. Is there anything I could get for you while I'm down there? Or... Uh, you know, if you have any problems with your computer, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much into computers. I'd be happy to help you with it. Or if you see them working on a project that's really heavy and kind of overwhelming to them to ask, would it be helpful to you if I did da, 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 da? You always ask because sometimes maybe they don't want your help, you know? Right. Uh, but, but could I help you with that? Would it be helpful for you if I did that? Uh, it's, it's those kind of things in the workplace that are very, very meaningful to those people. I remember one administrative assistant said, if my boss ever lifted a hand to do anything to help me, I would drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, her appreciation language was acts of service. But yeah. he never asked her, is there something I could do that would be helpful to you? <laughs> What's fascinating to me is when you say it out loud, it's not like, PhD level stuff. It's like, of yep. course, you know, it's, it's kind of the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. Uh, and yet it's so absent in the workplace. And a lot of these don't even cost any money. I mean, it's just the way you treat other human beings. And in fact, as an employer, it's going to save you money because you'll have lower turnover and happier employers who, employees who are, who are engaged. And I guess for those of us who work in a not-for-profit church setting, that goes for volunteers too, right? If you start paying your volunteers in their love language, that's Absolutely. a real motivator. Absolutely. What we found is this. In nonprofits, including churches, people volunteer because they want to make a difference in the world. Hmm. But the reason they stay in that volunteer position is they feel appreciated by the people that they're doing it with and for. Wow. If they don't feel appreciated, they'll leave that volunteer position and go volunteer somewhere else. So the reason they volunteer and the reason they stay is often very different. They still want to make a difference, but if they don't feel appreciated, they go make a difference somewhere else. Tremendous impact for churches and nonprofits. Yeah, that's a huge insight. It really, really is. And um, again, appreciation is not always the annual thank you dinner, right? right. It's right. personal, it's specific, it's beyond that. I want to ask you, what is uh, some of the best marriage advice you've ever heard and some of the worst that you've ever heard? Oh, I would say the most powerful word on marriage would be, it's a scripture verse. Yeah. Philippians 4, which said, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was God, he did not demand his rights as God, but he emptied himself and became a man. Got on the same level with us, and then he emptied himself further to death on the cross. It's the attitude of I'm here to serve you. It's the opposite of selfishness. A selfish attitude in a marriage 
is thinking, what am I getting out of this? You're not meeting my needs. You're not carrying your load. So it's, it's what am I getting out of it? This attitude is an attitude of service. I'm here to invest in your life. I'm here to help you reach your potential for God and good in the world. And the reason I say that's the most important advice is because it's what changed my own marriage. <laughs> because all of us by nature are selfish. Yep. And I entered marriage with a selfish attitude. I was, I was going to be so happy. This woman was going to make me happy. <laughs> she didn't make me happy. <laughs> make her happy. <laughs> Until it dawned on me one day that I had a very selfish attitude. And I was not following the example of Christ who said about himself, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And I thought, wow. And I just said, God, that's the attitude I want. And when I adopted that attitude and started reaching out to her and saying, how can I help you? How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better husband? She gave me answers. And what happened in her? Within three months, she started asking me those kind of questions. When you get it going this way, you're going to have the marriage you wanted, a loving, supportive, caring marriage. It all has to do with the attitude. Got to ask you, that's not just good marriage advice. That's great leadership advice. I mean, that's at the heart of servant leadership and everybody wants to work for a servant leader. Nobody wants to work for the boss with all the benefits flowing to him or her. You said within three months. So some of us have a short fuse. It's like, well, I tried that for two days. It didn't work. How, how, do you, how did you get through three months of just flipping that and saying, I'm just going to serve? I think it was because my heart had been changed when I just asked God, forgive me for being so self-centered and give me the attitude of Christ. I, I think it was a spiritual thing for me that, that I just felt that this is what I'm here for. It's what I'm going to do. And I'm not saying that if you do this, that every uh, that the spouse will always turn around and reciprocate. Right. Uh, but I am saying there's nothing more powerful you can do. See, I didn't know anything about love languages at that time. But looking back on it, her answers were teaching me how to love her. The things she said, you know, what you can do. She was teaching me how to love her. And when people receive love, they're far more likely to respond to your request or to start asking you what they can do for you. So it's, it's like love stimulates love. You know, this, it's like we love God because God first loved us. Same principles true in human relationships. Somebody has to initiate it. By nature, we sit there. If they'll change, I'll change. You might wait a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but no one can keep you from changing your attitude today. You can change it. You know, and you begin to change your attitude and reach out to serve them. And you're doing the most powerful thing you can do to enhance the climate of your marriage. Well, and I, I can say from personal experience, you know, your teachings have really helped my wife, Tony, and I uh, get along a lot better over time. And they've helped literally millions of people. But one of the questions I get, and I'm sure you've seen it in couples that come to see you because you still counsel. You've seen it. You've heard about it many times. People who say, I love my spouse, but I feel like a doormat. I feel like they're walking all over me. There's no reciprocation in this. What, what do you say in a case like that? What's at play there? Yeah, well, you know, the common response, the natural response is that you're hurt. And, uh, and that hurt leads you to bitterness and anger and later hatred. 
just wanting something to happen to them bad, you know. Uh, that's the natural response of all of us when we get hurt and stepped on and feel like that we're not being treated uh, with respect and dignity. Uh, I'm very empathetic with that emotion. But if you yield to that emotion, then you'll become a part of the problem and not a part of the solution. But if you can rise above that and say, this is the way I feel, but I'm going to choose to learn my spouse's love language and I'm going to choose to speak it. And I'm going to do it for a period of time. I usually say, let's do a six month experiment and let's see what happens. And somewhere along the line, as, as they began to express you know, that, that this is good. I, I'm, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm feeling a whole lot better about us. You start making requests of them. And because they feel loved by you, they're very likely to respond to your request. If not, if they don't respond to your request, at the end of the six months, you can do the tough love thing. You can say, I don't know how you feel about us. But I feel like the last six months, I have really been trying to be a, a better wife or a better husband. And I don't know if you feel like I have, but I know I've been trying. But I don't feel like you're reciprocating. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe you don't want our marriage. Maybe you don't like to be married. But I've got to have some help. And I'm going to go for a counsel- to see a counselor. And if you want to go with me, I'm happy for you to do so. But if you don't, I'm going by myself because I've got to have some help. Often it's that kind of approach that wakes them up and they either go to the counseling or they say, well, let me, let me, let's talk about it. Yeah. And then, and then beyond that, you're at very specific advice about the future of a marriage that should be worked out with a counselor. But here's what happens most of the time. We're hurt. And so we grumble, we complain, we lash out in anger periodically at them. And then we try to do tough love. And we say after two, after two years, you know, all this bickering, we say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go live with my mother. And if you're willing to get help, I'll, I'll consider that. But I'm not staying here any longer. And they say, good riddance. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> two years is condemnation. So right. we try tough love at the wrong place. We should try tender love for a period of time before we do tough love, then the tough love is far more likely to be successful. Ah, that's a really good word. What's some of the worst marriage advice you hear commonly given by people? You gave us some of the best and that was great from Philippians. Fantastic. I think the worst concept is you deserve to be happy. (laughs) You deserve to be happy. And if you're not happy in your marriage, go find you somebody who'll make you happy. Marriage alone is never going to make you happy. (laughs) (laughs) Happiness comes essentially from investing your life in helping people. And it starts in the marriage. If you invest your life in others, it gives you a deep sense of satisfaction. Your parent, your your children, your parents, your neighbors, you know, but you, you, you set for your goal in a marriage to you, you're supposed to be happy. And if you're not happy, then, and, and your friends will tell you this. You know, that, that, some who have been divorced, they'll say, well, you know, if you're not happy, yeah, I, mean, I was unhappy for years. And I, I just, uh, you, you ought to leave because there's somebody out there that will make you happy. Oh, I hear that all the time. Why do you think that is such a pervasive, I would call it a myth. I would agree with you. Why do you think that's such a pervasive belief? 
perhaps because our culture has become a happiness culture. It's pleasure seeking. It's almost like pleasure has become God. This is where you find meaning in life, pleasure. So whatever's pleasurable, you know, do it. And we bring that into our marriage that this is, you're supposed to be making me happy and I'm not happy. So I'm going to go try to find something to be happy. Yeah, I, I think it's largely our culture that, that, that is, we've accepted that cultural message. Yeah. Uh, your research, you continue to write, you continue to research, you continue to counsel. What is your current subject of fascination, research, exploration these days? I'm curious. What are you passionate about most as you look ahead? Well, uh, we just turned in a manuscript that I wrote with an, with an African-American friend of mine that I've, we've been friends for over 50 years. He's a counselor as well. Uh, met him when he was 14, and I was rather young myself. And we've just written a book that will come out in January to young men, uh, approximately ages 11 to 16, hmm. on wise decisions. And the theory is, the, the thesis is, that the decisions you make in these years are going to affect the rest of your life. Yeah. So it's, uh, the subtitle is 11 Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Hmm. And I don't know what the official title will be, but... Uh, and we're hoping that we can get into the African-American community as well as the Anglo and Hispanic community and, and help young men on the front end of life to make some wise decisions that often are countercultural, but will pay huge dividends in, in their adult life. Man, I'm so glad you're going there. I'm so glad you've written on that. What made you decide to invest in that area? Well, I think because uh, just encountering so many young people who have grown up in homes where their parents divorced or many times they didn't, didn't even know who their father was and grew up without a father. And consequently, they don't have positive role models, male role models. And so we're trying to speak in and we're sharing our own experience of what we went through in those years and, and what brought us to make the decisions that we made in our lives. And so we're just that that's really what motivated both of us. It's just the desire to help young people who, who are not in necessarily healthy families, though, though a child in a healthy family will profit from the book, too. And we're encouraging them uh, to to read it with a father or with a, a trusted adult that both of you read it and, and discuss it with this older person so that we're hoping it'll be a tool for parents and others who, who want to mentor young men that age. Well, I know as we wrap up, uh, your books are sold everywhere books are sold, but if there's a website where people can get access to some of the assessments, I would be curious in running my team through the love languages of appreciation in the workplace. Where can you find things like that? Well, uh, the main website is fivelovelanguages.com. Okay. Number five, fivelovelanguages.com. You get a little review of all my books. There's free uh, online quizzes for married couples and singles and, and military couples and teenagers. And, and some of my books have downloadable uh, study guides if you want to use them in a, in a small group. Now, the uh, appreciation book is a different website. It's appreciation at work. Dot com and the ad is at appreciation at appreciation at work dot com okay and that that quiz uh, a free a free um, uh, profile comes with each book that's bought 
but you can also buy uh, additional uh, profiles without Excellent. the book. Yeah. yeah, which is a great investment if you're an employer. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, we will link to all of that in the show notes. Dr. Gary Chapman, thank you so, so much. This has been incredibly helpful and encouraging both personally and vocationally. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kerry. It was good chatting with you. I'm glad we met in Edmonton. <laughs> I'm glad we met in Edmonton too. I hope thank we you. Meet again somewhere along the line. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, that was so rich. And do you know we have transcripts? We have transcripts. We added those uh, six months ago or so. We also have show notes with links to everything that we talked about and so much more. You can find that all at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 250 or go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and just in the search bar, type in Gary Chapman. For any listeners who were at South by Southwest on the weekend where I spoke, thank you so much. Thanks for your support. I'm obviously recording this ahead of time, but I just wanted you guys to know how much your support means, uh, how cool that probably was because I'm recording this beforehand, but I'll give you a full report later. Anyway, that was like a bucket list thing for me to be able to speak at South by. So uh, that was awesome. Make sure you check out the free church health assessment at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. And it's almost Easter. Head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry and get a creative team working in your favor before you miss one of the greatest opportunities of the year. I just love our partners. They help us bring you this for free every week. And we are back next week with a fresh episode. In fact, it's the beginning of a little series. So um, next week, I'm going to talk to Kevin Queen. But on Thursday, March 14th, I sit down for a fascinating interview with Drew Powell and Matt Warren. So they have been at Crosspoint for years. Crosspoint's a great church in Nashville that's been through a big leadership transition, which we'll talk about. And it was actually Drew Powell who gave me the idea, if you follow my writings, to talk about how the foyer moved, how, how things have changed in a tractional church. I wrote a post a number of months ago that drew all kinds of reaction and response about why attractional church is past peak, why it's changing and what's next for weekend services. So I was in Nashville at the beginning of 2019 and I sat down in studio with Drew and with Matt and we talked about all the change. It is just a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt. Sometimes where it's like, okay, we're going to do an Avicii cover song to open the program. And you see, you know, these girls in their 20s and 30s and the boyfriends they dragged with them and they're like, oh yeah, this song's great. And so you see them connecting to an element in the program. And then you get up and do a, I don't know, a Bethel worship song. And you're like, oh, that's cool, but I don't know it. I've never heard that song before. Right. So it's a moment of connection. We leverage culture and, and kind of connect a church to that for them, yeah. essentially. And so it won when we were able to kind of intersect that culture moment and leverage it to use, you know, teach the gospel to these people. Um, so absolutely, attractional work. I mean, Crosspoint grew tremendously through the season where we focused mm -hmm. on that. And again, with our balance of discipleship, evangelism, and community, the evangelism thing worked. I mean, we were seeing tons of baptisms, tons, tons of salvation. So it was easy to look at the metrics and say, yeah, th this is working. And yet, for some of us, it still felt a little bit fractured. Now, if you haven't subscribed... That is a really good incentive to do so because then you're not going to miss Thursday's episode. And then next Tuesday, I'm back with Kevin Queen. We'll share more about that later. But man, he is the new pastor, the lead pastor at 
Crosspoint Church. And I'll tell you, one of my my new favorite people, I've gotten to know him over the last year. You're going to love it. And uh, so I love being able to drill a little bit deeper on some issues. And that's what we're doing this year. Uh, I think you'll love that episode. We are back on Thursday with a fresh episode. And in the meantime, thank you for everything. Just thank you for being you. Thanks for the ratings, reviews, the encouragement, the shout outs on social. Uh, the encouragement when I see you in person. You guys are the best. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.